good morning, church family. Great to see you all. Open up your Bibles to Genesis chapter 2, and let's bow our hearts in prayer. Thy word, O Lord, is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. Thank you for your spirit now that leads us through your word. I ask and pray that, Lord, that we would humbly find ways to come under your word and so to be formed and conformed to the very image of Christ. We pray this in your name. Amen. All right, we've got a whole chapter to get through here, so let's jump right in. You have Genesis chapter 2 open in front of you. We're going to pick up at verse 4. You'll notice these first words that Moses wrote in this account. These are the generations of. Okay, in Hebrew, toledot is the Hebrew for it. And you'll notice that as you read through Genesis, that this phrase, these are the generations of, occurs ten times throughout the Genesis account. And it marks the beginning of a new part in the narrative, in a new part of the account. And so under God's inspiration, we realize Genesis chapter 1 is one account. And in Genesis chapter 2, we get a second account. Now last week, we looked at the primordial, everything that happened from the beginning. This week, we're going to look at the beginning of history. Last week in Genesis chapter 1, God created everything. Do you remember that? One mighty creative thrust. He created a mass of everything. And then he filled and framed that creation through six subsequent words. Do you remember that? And in this, we saw that God is the God who brings order from chaos. That's partly what we saw last week. We saw God create flora and fauna and cover the earth. And we noticed that in Genesis chapter 1, every single thing that he created, he created it according to its own kind. Did you see that in Genesis 1? I'm, I'm raising this point because some questions came up afterwards that I think are worth just mentioning quickly. The first one is that as biblical Christians, we reject Darwinian evolution. Darwinian evolution requires that species transfer from one type of species to another type of species. Most notably, Darwinian evolution would suggest that apes become humans. Well, first of all, there is no scientific warrant for that whatsoever. That's entirely theoretical. There's no fossil evidence. There's no reason from science that we ought to give that any time of day. And more importantly, in God's word, we're told that God created everything on the sixth day according to its own kind, that it would reproduce according to its own kind. And so what we see in the created order are adaptations within species. But that's categorically different than Darwinian evolution. And on the sixth day, God created man. We saw in Genesis 1 that man was created in the very image and after the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them. God created man in his image after his likeness, male and female, in such a way that there is no distinction between gender and sex male and female. He created man not only in his image, but he created man to serve a purpose, to be vice regents, to rule and to reign over the creation on God's behalf. 
That was Genesis chapter 1. Today, Genesis chapter 2. And what we have here in Genesis chapter 2 is not a different account of creation. It's a more detailed account of what we see in Genesis chapter 1. It's an elaboration. It's like zooming in and seeing more details. The difference between Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2 is, well, I guess in some ways it's kind of like the difference between when I tell a story and when my wife tells a story, okay? When I tell a story, you're sort of going to get the high points of this is what happened, right? When Monty tells a story, she's going to tell you, and then she said this, and then he said that, and then she said this, and then this happened, and oh, did I tell you it was a sunny day? You're just going to get more detail. Same story, but more detail. And so today we're going to look at this detailed account in Genesis chapter 2. I want to pull three things out of it. Now today we're addressing the question, what is man? Okay, that's our central question. And in order to get at that, in Genesis chapter 2, we're going to look at the garden, the man, and the woman. So let's jump right in with the garden. Look at verses 5 to 14. Perhaps another way of thinking of Genesis chapter 2. If Genesis chapter 1 is what, then Genesis chapter 2 is more of how. Genesis chapter 2 verse 5. God creates the earth. He creates it pristine and uncorrupted. You can hear that in verse 5. When no bush of the field was yet in the land and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up. For the Lord had not yet caused it to rain on the land. When I hear this account and where I read it, my mind just goes to like images and pictures. And I kind of picture something like a scene from the movie's Jurassic Park. Before everything goes awry, right? God creates everything and it's lush and it's beautiful and it's teeming with life. And you can just feel the creative energy in the air. That's what we're being dropped into in Genesis chapter 2, verse 5. But there's one big problem. Did you hear it when Julia read it? Look at the end of verse 5. And there was no man to work the ground. Now this account in Genesis chapter 2 is in fact framed around two problems. The first problem is what we see here. God has created a good cosmos. He's created everything beautiful and pristine and perfect. But there's one issue. There's no one to work the ground. In verse 8, we're told God plants the Garden of Eden. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east. And there he put the man whom he had formed And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. God has created the earth. Now he creates a beautiful garden in the east. This garden we see in verses 10 to 14 is glorious and beautiful. It's described there as having 
four rivers that flow into it and out of it. That's fascinating to me that two of those rivers I've never heard of, but two of them I recognize. Did you? The Euphrates and the Tigris? You know, that locates this somewhere around what we would call modern-day Iraq in that fertile crescent. And you know, just as an aside, I love it when Scripture does things like this, gives specific times and places and mention of facts like this, because it, it prevents us from falling into that alluring trap of treating Scripture like a bunch of fairy tales that have moral lessons from which we can glean. The account that we see in Scripture, right down to the account of creation, is grounded in time and space. Like, you can go home, open up Google Maps, and look at the Tigris and Euphrates River. That's pretty cool. This creation is described in Genesis chapter 2, this garden, is so magnificent, it's the picture of all provision, everything that's needed for life. The rivers flow into it and flow out of it. But in Genesis 2, the garden is something even more. It's not only everything that's needed to live, it's everything that's needed to thrive. It's filled with jewels and gems and precious metals. Did you see that? And so this garden that God has created is magnificent because it sustains life and it brings abundance and joy. Well, so much more could be said about the garden, but suffice it to say for now that God creates paradise and man. He creates paradise for man and man for paradise. Okay, let's pause for a moment. Scripture is painting for us a picture of paradise. But I want you just for a moment to think about in your own mind and in your own heart, what does paradise look like for you? Now, you don't have to tell anyone, okay? So you can be honest. <laughs> what does paradise look like for you? Well, for some of us, maybe paradise is like an endless round of golf at Pebble Beach. Maybe for some of you, that's hell. For others, maybe your idea of paradise is a, a bottomless mojito on a sandy beach somewhere in the Caribbean. Or, you know, some iteration of this idea of paradise that we've developed on our own and in our own minds. Most of us, when we think about paradise, we would envisage some type of endless leisure. But in Genesis chapter 2, we see that that's not the biblical picture of paradise or of our role in the paradise. If you remember just a moment ago, we said that God created the entire creation. He created the garden, but there was one problem. What was the problem? No man to work the fields. Look, if your picture of paradise is endless relaxation and amusement, then you've been sold a bill of goods. You've been given a false promise of joy that will never satisfy. Back in Genesis chapter 2, verse 5, man was created by God to work. Look, this is really, really clear. Work in Genesis chapter 2, hardwired right into the fabric of creation, is a good, God-given blessing to humanity. 
in one more chapter, um, the curse of sin will corrupt that work. Right? The curse that befalls man following man and woman's failure to trust in the word of God. Man is told, uh, by the sweat of your brow you'll labor. He's, you know, work is given as a good thing. The curse of sin corrupts it. Now, the curse that we live under with our work is that for every pound of effort we put in, we get a penny's result. Okay? But deeply and fundamentally written right into the paradise, work in and of itself is from our good God. And look, you intuitively know that that's true. Because it's in work and labor that we find a sense of purpose, that we feel fruitful and useful. This is a God-given truth that the modern Stoics have reclaimed and recaptured if you read some of those guys, right? They, they're telling young people in particular that if you feel aimless and lost in your life, the best thing you can do is find the biggest rock you can and, and pick it up and carry it. There's something to be said for doing work. It gives you purpose and fruitfulness. God-given work is also valuable because it's only through work that our rest has any meaning or value. It's only after you've put in a good day's work that watching Netflix is enjoyable. If you spend an entire weekend in your pajamas watching Netflix, you feel like the soul has been sucked out of you, don't you? It's because the, the rest of the relaxation that you're enjoying is not the result of the work that you did. It's just become an end in itself and you feel void and purposeless and empty. That's why death scrolling, your social media, will do the same thing. Endless amusement is only soul-destroying. I think that's one of the reasons that I struggled so much during the COVID restrictions. I found myself at home and, in so many ways, unable to work. And it left me feeling at loose ends and pursuing joy and pleasure in ways that were unhelpful and destructive. We as human beings need meaningful work. Then along comes secular society, and it perverts and twists this need for meaningful work into equal and opposite problems, okay? God gives us work, he gives us the capacity to work as a good gift from him. But Satan comes along and twists it in our modern culture in two different ways. The first way is manifested in sloth. This is a dominant cultural narrative. That somehow finding ways to do the least amount possible is virtuous and good. Cutting corners. Happiness is to be found in sloth. That's what we're told. When in fact, we know from Scripture that hard work is where meaning and purpose is mapped into your life. Look, friends, if you're here today and you say, RD, I just, I feel aimless in this chapter in my life. Well, let me encourage you. 
to pray, to ask God, and to look for a purpose, to look for a job, a vocation, a calling, maybe even volunteering in some different way. I see this as plain as day, even in our congregation. We have some in our congregation who are retired. We even have some who are retired and octogenarians. God bless you. And some of those, now listen, I'm not going to name names because that would embarrass you, but we know who you are and you know who you are. You are shining examples of this because even in your 80s, even retired, you find purpose and meaning in serving other people as best you can. And as your pastor, I see the joy that that brings to your life. I see the blessing that it brings to your church family. Because God created us for work. And even if you're unable to work for whatever reason, with your hands or physically, maybe you're at a place in your life where God is calling you to do the work of praying for others. To actually roll up your sleeves, get out a journal, make lists, and pray. Maybe that's what God's calling you to do. You need a purpose. That's the way God created man. I was sitting recently um, in a place, and I'm trying to be vague because I don't want to embarrass people, and um, I was sitting there with someone from our church, and I looked over as that person opened their little journal because they were going to take notes, and as they opened their journal, I saw a page flip over, and it said, Prayer for Ray David, Monica, Matthew, and Kennedy. Uh, praise God for people who, even late in life in retirement, find joy and meaning and purpose in rejecting the cultural value and supposed virtue of sloth and working. Because that's what God made us to do. So that's one way that, that we get it wrong, right? Sloth. But the other way that we get it wrong is workaholism. If you are here this morning and you're a workaholic, if you believe that there is virtue in driving yourself into the ground, if you believe that it's somehow noble for you to burn yourself out and destroy yourself, hear this. God did create us to work, but the work that he created us for was to tend a garden. He created it. We tend it. If you are a workaholic, or more pointedly, if people around you tell you that you are, then you need to take a step back. Perhaps the problem is that you have forgotten that it's the Lord's garden. And he has merely given you the task of tending to it. These are equal and opposite problems of sloth and workaholism that corrupt the good gift of work. The bottom line is that God creates man to work. And here's a little, I don't know, truism or RDism or whatever you want to call it. It's not in the Bible, but I think it's true. Christian men and women work as though it all depends on us and trust knowing that it all depends on God. 
That's the picture of the Christian man or woman. Living out of the reason and the purpose for which we were created. So that's verses 5 to 8. Let's look at verse 9. And out of the ground God, the Lord God, made to spring up every tree that is pleasant in the sight, to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. God caused every tree to spring up. Two of them are notable. We're going to pick them up next week. The tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Okay, so that's our first, our first takeaway from this chapter. God creates the garden. Now we're going to look at God creating man. Let's look back to verses 6 to 8. The problem at the end of verse 5, there's no man to work the ground, verse 6. And a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground, verse 7. Then, the Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. A few things to note. First of all, recall last week in Genesis 1 that everything that was created was created from nothing, by God's word. Do you remember that? With the exception of man. Everything that exists in the cosmos was created out of nothing by the word of God, but man was created from the creation. God sets out to create man, and he creates him from the dust. And then he vivifies him, brings him to life by the very breath of the Spirit of God in verse 7. You know, we can't move too quickly off this because this is a picture of the glory of man. That we are both formed from the dust and yet breathed into by the life of the Spirit of God. When I picture this in my mind, I picture God gathering up a whole bunch of dust like a dust bin, right, off the, off the earth, and pressing it and forming it into a creating a man, and then this dust corpse is lying there like a CPR dummy, and God puts his mouth over top of the nostrils and <sighs> breathes his own very life into him. Well, this picture of the creation of man in detail shows us at least two things. The first thing is that as humans, we are deeply and inextricably linked to the creation. We've been formed from it. Look, you probably feel that every time that you go outdoors or go for a hike. You have a sense that this is more than just you're outside and you're enjoying something that's lovely and it, oh, isn't that pretty or beautiful? There's this like deep visceral connection that you feel to the glory of the cosmos. That's because the stuff that's in here is made from the stuff that's out there. 
the same stuff. You are deeply and inextricably linked to the creation. This speaks to the fact that we have within us this base nature. And in this regard, we as humans are no different than other six-day creations. And yet, this is the second thing we take from this. That unlike those other creatures, our very life is the breath of God. We have been created from the dust and yet with God-like abilities. We are lowly and base, but we are lofty and godlike. This is the paradox of humanity. It's a paradox that wasn't lost on the psalmist, right, thousands of years ago. When he wrote in Psalm 8, RD paraphrase, <laughs> he said, when I look at the heavens and the works of your hands, what is man that you are mindful of him or the son of man that you visit him? Yet you made him a little lower than the angels, crowned him with glory and honor and put everything in subjection under him. As humans, we are living, walking paradoxes because God forms us from the dust and breathes life into us. Such is man. Verse 15 God places the man in the garden. Verse 15, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden. To do what? To work it and to keep it. Verse 16, God then commands and says to the man, you shall surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat it you will surely die. Let me ask this in the form of a question. When God said to the man, to Adam, you cannot eat of the tree, of, of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, was God somehow withholding something good from Adam? Well, the answer from Scripture is clearly not. In verse 17, he says, God says, don't eat from it because when you do, you're going to die. And so we see a paradigm for how all of God's commandments and all of God's prohibitions, they are never don't. They're don't hurt yourself. Don't kill yourself. Follow my commands and trust that they're good because they're the best for human thriving. God places him in the garden and commands him to eat from everything but one tree. Because God is good and loves him. Okay, so God creates the garden. God creates man. The man is working the garden. He's in paradise. He's chilling. Things are good. But one more problem presents. And this is our second problem. Look at verse 18. Then the Lord God said, it's not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. And so this is our third thing. God creates the woman. 
Now, in verse 18, God notes that it's not good for man to be alone. And I can tell you that this is true, not only because it's in Scripture, but also from firsthand experience. There were a couple of years when I was alone. And it's not good for man to be alone. It's profoundly lonely. It's also fertile soil for sin and failure. God looks at the first man and says, it's not good to be alone. Now, if you are here this morning and you find yourself single, let me just say that um, it's clear to us from Scripture and also just from heroes of the faith that while it's not good to be alone, there is a special calling and a special grace given to a select few that they could live their life alone in a way that allows them to serve the Lord uniquely in ways that they couldn't if they were with someone else. It's a hard path, but God will grant you the grace to do it if he's called you to it. But in general, the statement God makes is, it's not good for man to be alone. And this, I think, is true of both men and women, but I think it's a little bit more true of men. Don't you? If I look at sort of the range of people that I know, um, when men find themselves alone, if, if their wife passes, they tend to be quicker to remarry. Women will either take a much longer time or not marry at all because they're just tired of looking after the guy. But generally speaking, the principle that God sets out here is he looks at the man and he says it's not good for man to be alone. And so the first thing that God does is he sets out all the beasts, all the birds, all the creatures before the man. And Adam undertakes to name them. Right? Is that going to be the, is that going to be the cure for the loneliness that he's feeling? Is that going to be the helper fit for him? Well, scripture says no. There was no helper fit for Adam to be found in the living creatures. So verse 21 to 22. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed it up in its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to him. So Adam falls into a sleep he arises sometime later, we don't know how long, and he is short a rib, but he's gained a wife. Good trade. And he looks at her, and we're told in verse 23, he looks at her and he's like, whoa, man. Is that what he says? It's like, whew, I've just looked at all the beasts and all the creatures and all the birds. There's nothing like that in all of creation. Whoa, man. He says, this is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of a man. I want, to, I want to pull a couple of things out of this before we close. The first one is that God created both man and woman, male and female. He created man from the dust and woman from the rib of the man. God, in Genesis 2, we are told, created 
two genders that are inextricably tied to those same sexes because they're rooted in the created order. Now this is an immutable, unchangeable, but shockingly countercultural statement to make. That's the first thing. The second thing is, God created man from the dust and woman from man. Now, in so doing, God created them as two distinct creatures, part of one species. They are distinct because they have different origins. Okay? Both were created by God. One comes from the ground. The other one comes from the man. That's what we see in Genesis chapter 2. And so it is a clear biblical truth that God creates male and female, man and woman, and he does so in such a way that they are equal recipients of his grace in creation. Equal and different. God creates man and woman different in ways so that they would complement one another. And when they complement one another, back in Genesis 1.26, we're told God creates man, male and female. He creates them in his likeness and his image. And when they come together as equal and different together, they express the very image of God. Now look at verse 24 to 25. What we read here is not just the account of man and woman. It's the account of husband and wife. Jesus refers back to this passage later in the Gospels. And if you, as a Christian man or woman, faithfully read through the scriptures, Old Testament and New, you will see this truth reinforced time and again. That God creates man and woman equal and different. He creates us equal, but asymmetrically with different roles, both in the home and in the church. And that only makes sense because the church is just the household of God. And we, as Christian men and women, we look at the way God has ordered maleness and femaleness, equal but with different roles, and we behold it as beautiful. Every time you see a household that is structured around male, female, equal and different, you behold something as beautiful as creation itself. It is the God-given role of the husband to take responsibility for and to lead his home in godliness. It is the God-given responsibility of the wife to help her husband and to submit to him in godliness as he loves her as Christ loved the church and gave his life for her. Okay, no one's throwing anything at me yet. Some of you are sitting there and your fibers of your being are screaming out words like, Patriarchy, hegemony, right? Well, let me address those. First, no, no. If you react viscerally to this idea of God creating man and woman, distinct, equal, but with different roles, 
if you react viscerally to that, calling it patriarchy and hegemony, I want to suggest to you that that's because what you're picturing is an idealized version of 1950s North America. And there may not have been anything so great about that in the first place. That's not what scripture has in mind. When scripture sets out male and woman as different and distinct and complementary, it doesn't have an image of wives at home barefoot and pregnant. That's not it. Look, I'll give you a personal example. My wife, Monica, is a senior executive in a multinational firm. She's wise and smart and capable. She does not need me. And yet, in the home, she loves me and submits to me insofar as I am leading her in godliness. What does that mean? It means that husbands need to own their responsibilities for themselves, for their wives, and for their households. Next week in Genesis chapter 3, we're going to see how that goes terribly wrong when Adam's asleep at the switch and not leading in his marriage in godliness. And so the question arises, who is responsible for your family, for your home? Well, men, husbands, you are before God. The thing that I often tell young men who come for counsel is this. Not everything in your marriage or in your household is your fault. But everything is your responsibility. Men and women created different and distinct before God with different roles. Men called to tenderly and lovingly self-sacrifice and lead their wives in godliness. Men called to initiate and take responsibility for their wives and for their homes in godliness. Women lovingly helping in ways that are fit. Well, that's the first response to the accusation of patriarchy. It's not that. The second, perhaps you would reject this biblical truth because you would say things like, well, the Bible is an ancient document. It was subject to the cultural norms of its day, and the cultural norms of the day were patriarchal. Again, I'd say no. We have to see this relationship between man and woman as equal, distinct, and different, as rooted in the creation, and then reinforced throughout the New Testament. Jesus and Paul, in particular, reinforced this. So again, you'd say, yeah, but R.D., Jesus, and Paul, they were subject to their times. And the answer is, of course, not, right? They weren't. There are clear examples throughout Scripture. I'm not going to take time this morning to go into them, but we can talk after if you want. There are clear cases in Scripture where the cultural norms of the day were anti-gospel and anti-truth, and Jesus and Paul stood up against them and blew them up because they weren't true. Jesus, Paul, the New Testament, and the Scriptures are not patriarchal. They are not tied to the culture of their day. This is the way God created man and woman, that they would be equal and different and come together in ways that complement one another and express the image of God. So God creates man from the dust. 
He creates man responsible for the care and nurture of the woman that he created from his rib. And her job is to love him by helping him. This is formed right into the warp and the woof of creation. Good creation. Uncorrupted creation. Note, this is before the fall. And it's done so by our good God. Because it's beautiful. And it's the best for human thriving. How many times have I seen marriages rescued when husbands self-sacrificially begin to love their wives and lay down their lives for them and lead them in godliness? And women, what woman wouldn't tuck in under that? It's beautiful and it's lovely. Bible commentator Matthew Henry wrote this of Genesis chapter 2. Feel this. He said, women were created from the rib of man to be beside him. Not from his head to top him. Not from his feet to be trampled by him. But from under his arm to be protected by him. Near to his heart. To be loved by him. Men of St. George's. Behold your wife. The woman that God has given to you. In a time when you are distracted by so much, the tendency is to shirk your God-given responsibility of caring for her. You're told things like she is her own responsibility. And so when you see her struggling, you dismiss it. You're like, well, you better figure that out. Or worse yet, you look at her struggling and you blame her for the impact that that has on your marriage and your household. Well, we're going to see that in Genesis 3 too. Adam blaming the woman. When in fact a wife is like a garden. And a husband is like a gardener. Men, if you don't like what you are getting out of your garden, pay attention to how you're tending to it. So we come to verse 24 and 25. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. This is marriage. Um, men sometimes get so hung up in their family of origin that they fail to cut the apron strings and cleave to their wife. That's sin. But when they leave and cleave, that's when God declares, now the two are one, works the miracle, one flesh. Verse 25, the first man and the first woman stand there in front of each other, buck naked and unashamed. What a picture. Well, the picture here is that it's truly in man and woman coming together as distinct and different but equal in the context of lifelong committed marriage that they get a glimpse of what it means to be fully known and fully loved. Something that's only fully realized in our relationship with God through Jesus. But if God has graced you with a wife, wife, if God has graced you with a husband, you can stand before them fully known and fully loved. One of the glories of creation. God creates the garden. He creates man. He creates woman. 
You know, friends, behold the beauty in God's design. Male and female, he created them. Equal and distinct. The problem is, every one of us who are husbands, we do this imperfectly at best. We perhaps know that we ought to be loving our wives as Christ loved the church, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 25, laying down our lives for them, taking responsibility for their growth in godliness and their care. But we're selfish. We're distracted. We shirk that responsibility and do it imperfectly, even with the best of intent. And see, this is why marriage matters. Because marriage is an earthly metaphor for the most important relationship in the cosmos. The New Testament refers to the church, people like you and me, as the bride. And Jesus Christ is the bridegroom. So when we as earthly husbands are imperfect and we fail to love our wives as we ought to, we Feel and know the power and the truth of the gospel that we, men and women, have a better husband in Jesus Christ. The one, the husband, who not only takes responsibility for us and for our growth in godliness, but makes it possible by justifying us and saving us before a holy God. He's a good husband. And so God created man. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that your word abides. That at times where there's so much noise and competition going on in our minds and in our hearts for truth, that we as Christian men and women come back to your word. And our minds and our hearts are recalibrated around truth. God, I pray that every man and every woman here would seek to love and serve you by loving and serving their spouse if they have one. And that no matter our marital status, that we would rest in this great promise that we are a bride who is well-loved by our husband, Jesus Christ. Amen.